What is up? Welcome to the Highbrow Book Club. My name is Cameron. We are joined by Emma Savoy and Austin Clark, and we are here to discuss part three of Anna Karenina. Let's go. Let's go. (laughs) Real quick, we're going to just gloss over. We're going to take a couple steps back and just look at the whole part as a whole, and then we're going to dive in and talk about our favorite scenes. Uh, So real quick, I'm going to butcher a lot of these names, but (laughs) as a whole, part three begins with Sergi taking a break from work, and he stays with Levin at the farm. Sergi views it as leisure, and Levin sees it as work. Levin visits Dolly, who's nearby. Dolly tells Levin that Kitty has suffered a lot. Levin finds out the the peasants are cheating him, and they deny it. Levin is revived of his love for Kitty by seeing her carriage. Um, Mm. Renan has internal conflict and grows resentment for Anna, and he writes her a letter that he likes, but Anna hates. Anna is disappointed that a divorce won't take place, and she wants a divorce and to take her son with her. Vronsky is struggling with money and refuses to ask his mom for a loan. He's reluctant right. to give up his professional ambitions. His friend, Serpukovsko, warns, <laughs> warns him how women can hold him back from his career potential. Anna and Krenin talk. He says that he doesn't want Vronsky to step foot in his home. They both part. Kitty being nearby is torturing Levin and is getting burnt out from the work he used to enjoy. Levin stops struggling. Oh, he's struggling big time. Struggling with work and trying to find out who he is. Uh, Levin stops to eat at the home of a prosperous peasant. And he tells Levin that landowners cannot rely on hired men because peasants handle a farm best on their own. At Svayaski's house, Levin's host wants him to marry his sister-in-law, but Levin doesn't want to because he wants to marry Kitty. Sviyaski believes all farming should be done under one scientific system versus another perspective of landowners saying the problem is respect for authority, and there's a lot of debate with that. Sviyaski says education is the key to winning over the peasants, and Levin disagrees. Uh, Levin's brother Nikolai shows up at the very end and leaves soon after. Supposedly he's dying and he keeps Levin up at night, causing him to contemplate death himself. Levin understands that he must live his life out to the very end. Mm. That was a beautiful synopsis. There's a lot to unpack there. I think we should, let's dive into some of these moments. Uh, Emma, I know you took notes on some of part one, if you wanted to get on in there. Yeah, yeah. All right, so... The very beginning of part three was actually my favorite part. It was about the country life that Levin's living in. He lives out in the country. He's working the land. And then his brother, Sergi, um, comes out to visit him. And Sergi views this as a break from life, a kind of escapism mentality, which is not understood at all by Levin because Levin just is always living out in the country. He views it as reality. Um, and he criticizes Sergi a lot for kind of romanticizing the country life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really cool yeah. to see the difference in their, in their perspectives. I think one of my favorite quotes is that, um, is one about Sergi where it says, Sergi liked the fish. He seemed to take pride in being able to like such a stupid occupation. Yeah. Just because it's kind of like he, he, just, he says that he likes doing it, but he's looking down his nose the whole time at, at the life out there. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a self-righteous, like, wow, good for me for being able to step back from, the higher things in life and enjoy the pleasantries of the simple living. So mm-hmm. Levin doesn't really appreciate the way he looks down on that. 
But then on the flip side, Levin's having this really cool character development where he immerses himself in the country life. He goes out and works the land himself with the peasants. And you mm-hmm. see him like the most invested and the most like engaged and the happiest you've seen him in the whole book so far. Um, there's one part where he works a whole day out with the peasants. He takes a nap with them. He has dinner with them. He comes back to see his brother and he is just over the moon. Um, and he says he's come up with this new um, remedy for all ailments. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe you can speak into this as a, as a med student. <laughs> The remedy for all things. Yeah. I don't know about work here, but I mean, the thing that stands out to me between Sergi and and then Levin, his brother, is just like Sergi believes in like the common good, you know, and he's got these like intellectual ideas of like how things should be done. Whereas Levin is just like, he just lives from a place of his personal perspective. And it's like, you see that, you see that like with like going out and working with the peasants, like he doesn't do that because he has some high ideal of like how you should treat peasants or like how you should live your life. He's just like, I enjoy this. So I do it. I don't know. And then Sergi's all about like, you know, he likes the idea of peasants, but he doesn't want to get too close to them, you know? Um, And he likes the idea of the country, but he doesn't really you know, live that out from a personal perspective. And uh, I don't know. Another quote that I really liked, like that kind of like goes along with this stuff is Levin and his brother, you know, are doing all these country things. And Sergey is always like saying, oh, how beautiful this is, you know, talking about like looking at the, the leaves and the shady streams and the young trees and Levin is kind of like, shut up, dude, like, (laughs) just enjoy it. And this quote, there's this one quote that says, Constantin Levin did not like talking or hearing about the beauty of nature. For him, words took away the beauty of what he saw. So you see, he's like, he's agreeing with his brother. He's like, "I, I recognize these things, but like, it's almost like you're taking away from this beautiful moment by ruining it with your, like, insignificant words you know that that don't actually like you're saying a lot but honestly saying very little like this is to be experienced not talked about yeah i think that's you were talking about this in an earlier podcast like the vulgarity of putting something into words and if you remember that yeah that's kind of what i thought when I read that conversation between the two, I just noticed a very, there's just a lot of difference between them. Mm-hmm. Like Karenin is all about moving and working and Sergi is more like in his mind intellectually. So I just saw it visually, like I visually saw it from that perspective. Um, but you always hear the difference between analyzing something and breaking it down versus looking at something and building it up and Beauty is like one of those transcendentals that um, whenever you try to put too many words to it and try to overanalyze it, you can kind of strip away mm-hmm. um, the eternal parts of it, I guess. Those, beauty is more of one of those things to be built up. But that, those are just some of my thoughts that were going through my mind when I read that part. Yeah. Dude, it's it also... Of like when you... Oh, I think there's a bit of a delay. <laughs> 
But I, it makes me think of um, you hear like empty memory, and then you think about memory. You have the purest memory of something before you express it. So, like, if you just did something yesterday, like you had a great moment with a friend or a conversation, it's most accurate in your mind until you try to tell someone about it. And then every time you relive that memory and go back to it, you break it down and you kind of re put it back together, and it's less accurate when you go revisit it until it becomes kind of what you wanted it to be, or a little bit more of a romanticized idea of it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what you see, like, or kind of what to this uh, concept of love. Yeah. It also reminds me of like uh it reminds me of Kitty at the spa in the last part actually like she is kind of like Sir like Sergi is kind of like her in at the spa in my mind of like he has this idea of like what's good and noble and like isn't really acting out of his own interest of like I actually love the peasants you know I love these as people you know he just like likes the idea of the country, likes the idea of the peasants. Reminds me of that with Kitty. Like she likes the idea of service, but like not doesn't actually want to serve. And like in this part three, like you see Levin doing all these things out of like a just a genuine like personal self interest. Um, you know, he's trying to do all these agricultural reforms, not because he thinks he should do it, but just because he wants to. Some, I have some quotes kind of flowing through my mind that I think maybe Tolstoy would agree with based off just this whole part in general, mm-hmm. just this whole idea of work and also the conversation between Levin and Sergi. But again, to bring up that Nietzsche quote that where Nietzsche says that for which we find words for is already dead in our hearts. That, that quote comes to mind. Also, there's a quote by Emerson and he talks about we are what we do speaks a lot louder than what we say. Mm. And I feel like if you could put a quote on Le- on Levin's character, it's probably that. Because mm-hmm. um, yeah. he might not have the answers to what he's doing intellectually, but he is getting his hands dirty. Like he's working with the peasants. Mm-hmm. Um, you may have really good, pretty ideas about the peasants, but I have concrete personal experiences with them. And yeah. I think that's something Levin is really leaning into. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you guys think this distinction in their characters makes Levin like a more trustworthy or truthful character than his brother? Or is it just like differences in personality? I think Levin is just so. Yeah, I think. It, honesty is definitely a thing with him you know like he's definitely prideful and it keeps him from you know uh reconnecting with kitty in this part three but um i think he's so honest to like what's going on inside of him and he like if he recognizes that like he is being untruthful to who he is like he starts to despise himself you know kind of how you see at the end, like when he's not being completely truthful with his other brother. So I, th- I feel like we can get more into that. Um, kind of at the end, but yeah, yeah he's definitely honest with himself. I want to put a theory out for you guys. Okay. And then you can tell me what 
what you think about it, okay? Bring it so I think, I think that Tolstoy might use uh, children as a judgment of character mm-hmm. so far in this book, and we can keep thinking about it. But the, the reason I was thinking about this is when Levin has had, like, the best day and has worked so hard and he's so happy, he's described as a child, like, four times in a row. So this is where I started thinking about this. So he comes back from working the field and it says he has this guilty childlike smile and he doesn't want to argue with his brother anymore. And then it says he ran downstairs, clattering his heels like a rattle, so like a baby rattle. So he's high on life and they start comparing him to like that child. Yeah. So much wonder for everything. And then, okay, the scene after this is when he goes to visit Dolly and her kids out in the country. And Such a he, joyful scene too. Like I love this part. Such a good scene. It's so to, to flesh that out a bit. Dolly brings her family out to the country, and at first struggles because the house out there isn't well kept, but then kind of gets in a flow and starts to appreciate all the. It so says she appreciates the little beauties of her own children, all the little moments more and more. Um, and it's just a wonderful scene. Like it's the happiest you've seen her, and and her kids and Levin all together. So Levin visits them and just plays with the children, and it has this really cool quote. Um, where it says, quote, hypocrisy in anything at all may deceive the most intelligent, shrewdest man, but the dullest child recognizes it no matter how skillfully it is concealed and is repelled by it. Mm. But because Levin is so like childlike and so joyful and so transparent, it says that the kids love him and, and point to him. Um, and this just reminds me that the very beginning of the book, Anna hangs out with Dolly's kids for like a whole day it says instead of going out she plays with the children and they dote on her and that's like the beginning of the story when she's going back to that ideal woman when she's still you know at the top of her game so to say so maybe that he's using them as like a a measurement of character right now in the story yeah i think you're spot on i think you're spot on i mean because even it even like when anna has that uh night at the ball where like she um you know starts to kind of like fall from grace with you know as she falls for vronsky the next day you see that the children like can sense something's off with her and like don't like don't dote on her anymore and like don't care about her and god yeah and you you see that also with um anna's child that she that her child can sense that something's wrong with like between her and Vronsky, the child doesn't know how to react to Vronsky. And it's described kind of like as a compass, I think, you know, as pointing like where this, how this relationship is like taking Anna way off course. Um, I think you're spot on with that. Yeah, so I just thought that was a really cool way that he might be trying to catch the readers up on the change in the character of the characters mm-hmm. changing their virtue or vice. Yeah. So do you do you yeah. then think that this is showing a change in Levin's character? And what do you think the change is? Well, I think that him being more in touch with himself and more confident for being out in the field and just hopefully coming more into his emotions. I think that the, the general idea is that his character is becoming more transparent. Mm-hmm. Honest when he's around the kids um, at this point in his life, which hopefully means that he can get over the pride issue, mm-hmm. Kitty, 
and you know be honest with her and that can move forward yeah um, that's the hope but there's that conversation that i also think is really interesting with dolly and levin around the same time where dolly basically finds out that levin had proposed to kitty because she didn't know before and she starts pitying kitty and is feeling mm-hmm. really bad for kitty and levin's pride kind of gets gets a hold of him and he's just like no i'm too i'm too hurt from all of this yeah um dolly points out that as a woman and i thought this was interesting um kitty doesn't get to propose she doesn't get to to develop her feelings and decide oh i like this person I'm gonna ask him to marry me she just has to say yes or no yeah the receptive role of a woman and, One, uh, yeah, Kim. No, what I was going to add is that <clears throat> what was going through my mind is I think really cool with Levin is that him working in the field and him in comparison to all the other characters, he's he's the one character that through a novel, he's working on himself. Like I just picture him just getting his hands dirty and working really hard and he's working on himself in order to like, just like he's struggling with his pride. Mm-hmm. I just look at the physical image of him working in a field. That's what he's doing. Like he's, he's struggling with his pride and he's trying to figure it out, mm-hmm. but at least he's not lying to himself yeah. or trying to deceive himself or like, whereas like right. every other character is doing that. Every other character, like for example, a blonde, um, Stepan is all his, his he's got financial problems and he, he <laughs> And he can't even take care of his own family. And Dolly has to stay at this other house while he's away. And I just look at this. I think there's this theme of, I guess, priorities of Mm -hmm. people that try to take care of their state or their community before they try to take care of themselves. Yeah. Or their family. And like Levin is an example of someone that wants to take care of himself first. Um, and we'll talk about this in a second, but a character like Karenin mm-hmm. cares more about the outside, how he's viewed yeah. the outside versus work starting from the inside out. Yeah. I'd, uh, It'd be interesting to, to go into the dialogue. Yeah. Maybe Vronsky and Karenin. I'd, I'd like to take this time while we're talking about, um, like the character of these men and kind of, uh, like where they, like what's guiding them at the moment to, to go into a little bit of, of Vronsky. Cause uh, we get a little view into within this part three, we get a little view into his inner life and like what's actually guiding him. Um, and so I forget what chapter this is. It might be chapter. Oh, it's chapter 19. Um, but it's all, it talks about like, Vronsky getting his his money together and like trying to figure out his debts um, because you know he's kind of running low on money. Um, everyone thinks he has all this money from an inheritance, but it turns out he actually gave it to his brother. Um, and it talks about you know it says Vronsky, despite his seemingly frivolous social life, was a man who hated disorder, and that's when it gets into him like trying to get his affairs in order. But a part that I wonder if I can just read out loud, if you don't mind, um, is when it talks about his code of ethics. Um, so, yeah, can I, would you all mind if I just like read this little paragraph? Austin, I would love you to. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Let me get my voice ready. Mm. Okay. 
Bronsky's life was especially fortunate in that he had a code of rules which unquestionably defined everything that ought and ought not to be done. The code embraced a very small circle of conditions, but the rules were unquestionable. And never going outside that circle, Bronsky never hesitated a moment in doing what ought to be done. These rules determined unquestionably that a card sharper must be paid, but a tailor need not be, that one not lie to men, but may lie to women, that it is wrong to deceive anyone, but one may deceive a husband, that it is wrong to pardon insults, that it is wrong to pardon insults, but one may give insults, and so on. These rules might not be all very reasonable or very nice, but they were unquestionable, and in fulfilling them, Vronsky felt at ease and could hold his head high. Only most recently, in regards to his relations with Anna, had he begun to feel that his code of rules did not fully define all circumstances, and to envisage future difficulties and doubts in which he could no longer find a guiding thread. At, when I read that, I was just like, wow. Like Some of these... I mean, some of it seems so, uh, I don't know, just like random, I guess. But I, I wanted to, to pose a question to you all. Like, can you contrast, can you pick out a few contrasts between Vronsky's inner drive and Levin or even Stepan's inner drive? Um, let's see. I mean, Levin is more because they're, they're, it's so, it's very easy, for, at least for me, to sympathize with Vronsky. Because, mm. I mean, he does have he does have a code of ethics that at least he's um, committed to. Yeah. That's given him some type of peace and meaning in his life. But I'm not sure how because I was thinking of a lot. There's a lot of, I feel like, parallels between Vronsky and Karenin. I was thinking about. Oh really? Head. Yeah. Why don't you um, Why don't you parallel those two? Well, I just realized a couple of chapters before, like around in chapter thirteen, there's this part where um, Karenin's talking about what the situation between him and Anna is like, and he related it to it's like getting your, it's like it's like getting my tooth pulled out. Mm. And it's like a long aching tooth pain, and I couldn't help but think of the image that Tolstoy paints for us for Vronsky with his very nice teeth in his mouth, you know, and there's just a lot of physical features with like, but Vronsky's losing his hair and like Levin has these weird ears pointing out. There's definitely a lot of parallels. I mean, they have the same name. Um, so there's, there's a lot of parallels between these two characters, but I will say this though, at least Vronsky I feel like we're peeling an onion right now. Yeah. I feel like we're going to get to the heart of this, but we, we got to dance around. Yeah, let's dance. But the, but Vronsky is definitely more loving, more emotional. Like, yeah. And is attracted to it. Whereas Karenin, on the other hand, is like a machine. Yeah. I also found out that Karenin's name, like Karenin, the translation of that um, was pulled from the Odyssey and it can be translated into um, the head. Okay. So it, it makes sense to kind of yeah. visualize Brennan's character is that is he is just yeah. the mind that makes he has no yeah, heart. That makes sense in relation to Bronsky because I feel like he could be seen as like the heart, you know, like a lot of these like mm-hmm. inner rules of his don't seem to make a lot of sense. Kind of like a lot of our emotions or, you know, the things that we're 
you know, um, that give us passion, don't always make a lot of sense to us. Um, but he sticks to them and he's, he's honest in that way at least. But, um, yeah, I just also thought it was interesting that now, you know, Vronsky's getting into uncharted waters, you know, where his heart isn't telling him exactly what to do anymore. Um, especially after Anna's revealed to him that she's pregnant. Um, but yeah, Emma, did you have any thoughts on, uh, on Vronsky's character? Um, so I actually thought I did not think very highly of Code of Ethics because it sounded like, maybe I was reading into it, but it sounded like he was trying to figure out the easiest way to get out of paying as many debts as possible. Mm. Like he said, the, the, like the tailor and the hotels and places that basically he wasn't connected to and wouldn't know really who he was, it didn't matter. Yeah. And I thought that contrasted Levin, who would probably view those small businesses and like more his personal relationships mm, and yeah. people that he would want to pay back. Um, but then there was a there was that odd contradiction of Ross's character where he is a bit of the heart and you see that he's given up a lot of his money for his brother and he ha- like he still does have virtue. He's not supposed to be villainized as a character, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's definitely he's definitely um been fleshed out more and more as the story's gone on. Um because I, I mean that when I first was introduced to Vronsky, I thought, man, this dude is such a snake. This guy's the worst. Um but now I've started to I mean you, you get to see through Vronsky's eyes kind of why he's made the choices he has and um it's not as clear cut as you might think, but um, yeah. Awesome. That's pretty interesting. What I just thought of is when you read, this is what books can do. Like Anna Karenina is that when you read Vronsky's character, cause I had a similar feeling at first. It's like, Oh, this guy kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. But the more I read into him, the more I realized it's the same idea of when you view people, you let's just say you have a hard time dealing with or vibing with it's there's always, there's always another side to a story, you know, like we're so quick. I think this is why this is a really good book so far is that, you know, the very first line of this is vengeance is mine. I will repay. And you, any, we can talk about how that, but he pulled that from the Bible and that's God's voice saying like, I will take care of the revenge. Mm-hmm. Whereas like we, our duty is to, is to be merciful mm-hmm. and always basically give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Be like, okay, let's just say that person was obnoxious to me in the grocery store. You know, you're very quick to judge and be like, Oh, that's a terrible person. Or you could have the thought of maybe that person had just had the worst day of their life. Mm-hmm. You know, like what if something very bad happened? There's always another side to a story. And for example, like Vronsky, like we don't know much about Vronsky's childhood. No, like yeah. Where did the like where did this narrative, like these code of ethics, come from? Mm-hmm. It's like maybe he didn't ask for them. Maybe he was conditioned as a child with these narratives that made sense to him. And that he's lived his whole life by, whether we agree with it or not, it's something I feel like that's pretty challenging or Tolstoy at least is challenging us to sympathize with that regardless if you agree with it or not, like everyone's got some code of ethics, but like, where do these code of ethics come from? Yeah. And they, most of the time they come from our 
our childhood or the way we were conditioned, the way we perceive the world and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that's so true. Um, I feel like this book, it really shows, um, you know, what can be going on in someone's inner life that you have no idea of. And you see that in the characters as they interact with each other. A lot of times what's going on inside is not, you know, fully conveyed to uh, the person that's in front of them. And it, it causes all these troubles. Um, I think you see that too when Bronski interacts with um, with Anna and comes to her um, after receiving the letter um, and they meet in the garden. And, um, and Anna, you know, shares to Bronski um, kind of the letter that she got from Karenin. And in Vronsky, he immediately thinks like, oh, we're going to fight a duel. And that's reflected on his face. It says, you know, his, his expression, it's stern and he seems insulted. Whereas Anna was looking for him to just, you know, have this, you know, outburst of abandon everything and fly away with me. And it says she would leave her son and go with him. But the news did not produce in him what she expected. He only seems insulted. And so Anna all of a sudden is like crestfallen as soon as she breaks the news to Vronsky, not thinking, oh, Vronsky, you know, she, she sees that change in his face as uh, as kind of a judgment on her or her situation. Um, and in just that one little reaction, um, she makes the decision that she can never leave, never leave her humiliating situation, even though Vronsky then begs her to come away. Um, you know, because he reads the letter, Vronsky reads the letter, raises eyes to her, and there's not a firmness in his look that she's looking for. Um, and it says Anna understands that her last hopes disappointed. This is not what she had expected. Um, so I just thought that was interesting. You know, it's like he says exactly what she wants to hear. Um, you know, he even says to her, for God's sake, which is better to leave your son or go on in this humiliating situation? You know, come come with me. Um, and she fights that, even though she was just wishing for that statement to be made, um, all based off this judgment of the way he delivered it. Um, yeah, I think um, and with Anna's character, a big part of this chapter is kind of hard to read all of her parts, is that she is just, it's almost like the guilt of eating her alive and changing the way she thinks about everything. Because as soon as she wants something, even if it's given to her, she suddenly feels guilty and flips her desires, and then she doesn't know what she wants anymore. Mm-hmm. And so you just see, she, she just seems to be in a terrible Yeah, I think in that chapter, I think she said the line, because I remember it, or at least you could, I could picture like Anna in a portrait with this quote underneath it, and she said the line somewhere where it said, do you love me? And I think that that really stuck out to me because people that say that question or even question love, mm-hmm. at least with someone else, it's really coming from a place that they, they know that the person doesn't love them. Because if you knew that person loved you, you wouldn't really have to question it. Mm-hmm. And Anna is this character that she's questioning it. Yeah. Which means that she really believes deep down that, Bronski may not love her, which that's kind of like how I analyzed it. I could be over <laughs> looking into it too deep, but I, don't know. I think that you're onto something because maybe at this point, 
it's it's because of what she's done in a way that she doesn't trust mm. because the foundation of not having to ask if someone loves you is there's trust is very fundamental in love um so you assume the other wills are good but since anna didn't do that as her own marriage and bronski is obviously a prioritized like has compromised other people's marriage as well and is not the most trustworthy that elements removed and therefore she can't trust yeah. the idea of love anymore yeah i, I want to like touch on you kind of touched on it like the the place of her mistrust isn't coming from Bronsky, but from within herself. Um, that her, like, because her morality and spirituality has been compromised, um, she no longer can, you know, trust in another human being. Because um, Bronsky's really given her no reason not to trust his love for her. Um, but now, in every movement of his face, it talks about her reading into that as he's going to leave me. He's going to abandon me. Yeah. On the flip side, though, we have Karen and his character. Let's his mind right now. So, Cam, I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that aspect. Yes, I would love to talk about this. This was one of my – this is my favorite – scene in the whole part it's in chapter 13 so we're going to go back a little bit i'm going to kind of read i'm going to kind of just commentate on it i think it's the best way to go about this this whole chapter is golden just full of nuggets um the chapter basically starts off with Karenin not liking people crying he has a problem with that <laughs> uh because like it's just funny, yeah. This this character is all the mind. Like he does, he does not know how to deal with his emotions, and especially if people come to him with emotions, that is even a bigger problem because it makes him feel very uncomfortable. So <laughs> chapter thirteen basically opens up with saying that he'll get angry and won't listen to you if you come up to him crying. Uh, I thought that was kind of funny because I mean tears are a manifestation of something. Oh, he is just cold. Yeah. Can you imagine going up to someone and you're something just happened and you're tearing up and he just responds with anger. But it's but it's a way to I mean tears are a manifestation of something external. Right. He can't process his own emotions, so he's unable to process right. others. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I think it's such a this chapter just opens up with a bang with uh, talking about that. Um, Cause then he then goes on to talk about how he suppresses his feelings um, when Anna weeps in front of him. Mm-hmm. Cause that makes him uncomfortable. And it talks about how he suppresses his emotions and it looks like death was painted on his face. Um, and I want to read the paragraph of the, when I was talking about earlier um, with the comparison with Vronsky. This is the paragraph I was talking about. It says, he felt like a man who has had a long aching tooth pulled out. After the terrible pain and the sensation of something huge, bigger than his head, being drawn from his draw, the patient still not believe in his good fortune, suddenly feels that what had poisoned his life and absorbed all his attention for so long exists no more, Mm. and that he can again live, think, and be interested in something other than his tooth. This was the feeling Alexia Alexandrovich experience. The pain had been strange and terrible, but now it was gone. 
He felt that he could again live and think about something other than his wife. I read that. I was like, oh my gosh, this dude does not, <laughs> this dude has no love, sympathy for his wife. He related to it being like a long aching tooth pain that he could finally just kind of move on and get rid of. And this, and Anna expressing her hatred towards him is like giving him that leverage. And he's like, oh, I could finally be yeah. free. I could finally not have this pressure to mask this love. Where we can yeah. mask what we have going on. We can finally just be free from it. It's like the but, the relief I think is coming from like he now knows exactly how to think about it. You know, it's like before he's struggling like, you know, what is going on and like how do I need to be? And now it's finally like everything's very clear to him, and that's the relief. Yeah, he's like, oh, I don't have to deal with this human, um, this human reality of. Uh, above my marriage like i don't have to i don't have to fight for that anymore cool i'm just gonna put that to the side this is giving me an excuse to put this to the side and uh, not worry about it and i could just worry about my work now Um, which is very cold it's very machine-like um but it makes sense that if he's only intellectual with no heart he doesn't want anything to, to deal with uh the qualities that make us human i mean it goes on to talk about um he basically keeps trying to articulate in his head, like, how can I figure out a way to go about this? And he's going through different options. He's weighing it out. But he, time and time again, he comes to the same thought of talking about, like, I made a mistake buying my life to hers, but there's nothing bad in this mistake. And therefore, I cannot be unhappy. I'm not the guilty one. Like, he continually says that he's not the guilty one. Like, I can't be unhappy. She must be unhappy. And a lot of his decision-making is being based off that. He wants to make a decision where he's happy, but also where it results in her unhappiness as well as Vronsky's. And I couldn't help but think of the image of him just pointing the finger. Because that's what he's doing. This whole situation's happening, and he's pointing the finger. Keep in mind, this is a tough situation of, like, someone cheating on you, Um, especially in marriage, but, but still. This is, I, I think Tolstoy is brilliant in this because he's challenging us to think that is Krenin right in his thought process here? And I personally just don't agree. I think even if, <laughs> I think you can always start with yourself and be like, okay, what, what could I have done possibly wrong? Like what, 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 what responsibility can I take up? Because that's everything Krenin's doing is he does not, want to bear any of the responsibility or accountability yeah. that has result that's ended up in this situation. I just want to hear y'all's thoughts of yeah. like, if y'all agree or not. Um, it's funny. Cause what I, I was thinking about something similar. I was trying to think about what their initial marriage would have looked like and what maybe would have drawn two people like Anna and Karen in together in the first place. If now they've come to a point where they hate each other so much. Um, and so it's similar in the sense of there's probably some root thing that Karen could have done differently that could have helped with the situation, like the indif- maybe recognizing the stonewalling and the indifference being so hard for Anna. Or if it's, is it just like a fundamental personality difference? Like, would they never have worked? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like he is so cruel in this section where he's just thinking like, what is the mm-hmm. most pain I can inflict on her? 
no, I, I'm not going to let her free by you know letting her divorce in any kind of way and and, and leave with Vronsky. I'm going to hold her to me, not because like I love her or want her near me, but because I know it'll be painful for her to be near me. And I was just like, whoa, dude, that is dark. And then you know he, yeah, and and then he uh, he ascribes you know. Uh, even like a spiritual reason for doing that after the fact of coming up with that terrible idea of like, Oh, this will be, this is the Christian thing to do, you know, no divorce. And I'm being merciful in doing this. Um, but it's just ascribed to his action. You know, it's just an intellectualization of a very cruel act. And it's very telling that Anna sees straight through that when she get receives the letter. You know, she sees like, oh, he thinks he's being such a Christian, merciful person with this. Like, she knows exactly why he's holding her, you know, hostage in this marriage. Like, she sees that immediately. It's so interesting, too, because, like, the, I think one of the most full definitions of love is to know someone fully and to choose to love them anyway. And so, obviously, Anna knows Karen and like, but somehow it's chosen to hate all the little bitty things about him instead of choosing to love love them, you know? And I think that's one of those fundamental things that pulls people apart is like the, I was reading this somewhere, but contempt is one of the biggest issues in, like in couples therapy where people will start to just hate those little things and then not come to terms with their own. Yeah. The fact that it's something that they need to come to terms with on their own, that, that they need to get over that anyway. And that'll just build between both parties. That seems to happen here. Yeah, Emma, that's a really good point that I wanted to talk about as well. Is behind all these words, you can pick up on how hurt um, Karenin is. Like something happened like a long time ago for him to be going through all these, these thoughts. Like, just like Austin said, like, this is cold. This mm-hmm. is dark. And, like, something happened. I don't know what, but, I mean, there's just this built-up of resentment. But the only thing I can think of is uh, Jordan Pearson talked a lot about this. But this idea that, like, okay, life is suffering. Like, life is very difficult. And you have two options, like, two roads you can go down. You can either bear the responsibility of the world and transcend that suffering. It's something meaningful or you can play the victim card and just build resentment over the whole world, your whole life. And I feel like that second option is where Krennan is. He did, he does not bear any responsibility. He is point. He's been pointing the finger his whole life. I mean, it's obvious that he's not working on himself. Like he's super concerned with uh, society and what society views he doesn't start with himself. And this is this is very enlightening in my own life of how many times that we find ourselves like lost or struggling through something. And it's because we're not taking care of our own, pro- like we're not exercising, we're not getting quality sleep, like we're not taking care of ourselves. Um, and this is an example, at least that's what's bringing light to me is having that reverse disordering that those priorities of trying to take care of everyone else versus starting with yourself first. And Karenin is a classic example of someone that just he likes to just put things under the rug, 
if it's difficult to talk about, he avoids it. Um, and especially if it has to deal with emotions, you'll even result in anger. Um, but those are just thoughts that I was having with that. Another thing I wanted to add was the last thing I want to hint, then we can move on to uh, the next part is uh, this idea of external versus internal locus of control. Because I think it's very important because I'm reading another book on side of this as well. And it's called the seven habits of highly effective people. But one of the ideas in that book is the proactive versus reactive language. And it was hard not to see that in Crennan's character because what proactive language is, is that basically when something happens, you have the decision. You always have a decision to choose how to react. Whereas the reactive language is pretty much predestined. Like there's nothing that you can do. You are the way you are. You are your emotions. And um, you look at more of external forces that are in control. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what Karenin is looking at. He's looking at um, the external forces of society. He's looking at the external forces of uh, what if we got uh, gotten divorced um, rather than looking inward and starting there and being like, okay, what are some alternatives? Like, how can I try a different approach? Um, how can I react to the situation? But instead, it's just very impulsive and reactive. And it's not coming from an inward place, but rather um, he's lashing on to something external and that being society. I just want to see if y'all agree with that or not. Yeah, I think it's definitely coming from externals. You know, it's not it's not self-driven of... Uh... You know, he does. He does know like soul searching of kind of like, um, how do I feel about this? And you know, um, it's more just like what does what would society say if I did this or did that? Um, but what do you think, Emma? I don't know if I have anything to add. I think that was a really good point, Tim. He's very reactive. He's not decisive. Which is ironic considering he's a government official. It's kind mm. of funny. But <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, Emma, do you want to? Yeah, do you want to get into Anna's side of things, um, or even the what's yeah. going on in, with her? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like I said, most of this chapter is kind of digging into her guilt and her difficulty processing how to remedy this situation. Um, she goes back and forth and basically resolves. There's, there's no clear remedy, but she desires divorce. divorce. Um, one of the scenes that I think is kind of telling just to, to put a landmark on where she is right now is when she's at one of her friend's parties. I think it might be Betsy near the end of the chapter. And she's there because she is desperately hoping that she'll run into Vonsky because she has this idea that he's almost avoiding her. So she's becoming a little bit obsessive. Um, but the cool thing about this scene is that another woman comes to the party named Vasca, who she describes as like a new celebrity. I think just a new, a new popular woman in her social circles. And she comes in and she's described very similar to how Anna's described in part one, namely in how she's dressed, where it says that she kind of outshines what mm-hmm. she's wearing, which is what they said about Anna at the ball. And also that she had this transparent nature uh, where everyone who saw her loved her and she was very grateful, which was also how we perceived Anna at the beginning when she met with Dolly and was just 
this honest, joyful presence to help Dolly live in her situation with uh, Savan and how Kitty loved her. And so it's really interesting to see Anna look at Vasco and they have a conversation. It's not a significant conversation itself, but just the way Vasco enters the room and then you've just been reading about how Anna's te like tearing herself apart inside because she's not honest and transparent anymore with herself or with other people. So it kind of reminds you how much, how far she's fallen in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I think she even. So I thought that was just a pretty. Is this the same woman that um, has like the different men following her around and, and, and even thinks like, why can't, yeah, why can't I be as joyful as her? Um, yeah. Yeah, Anna's struggling, dude. <laughs> I feel so bad for her. <laughs> having a hard time. Gosh. Yeah, she's definitely falling. <laughs> so I think there's not a, there's not a lot of landmark moments. I think with Anna yeah. in this chapter. Other than just like yeah, muddled emotions, she man. Yeah. Gosh. But the very end of the chapter goes into um, Nikolai. And back to yeah, I can so, I can talk a little bit about that. Uh, I mean, before we talk about Nikolai, I also want to talk a little bit about Levin's journey on trying to. He's been trying to figure out what is this. You know, how can I make farming work? Um, and it's the problem, and he 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 has some interactions with some other landowners, um, and some other farmers in his community. It's just like the you know there's this struggle between the peasantry and the aristocrats where the aristocrats are trying to, you know, come up with all these new ways to do farming and the peasants are resisting it because they've been doing farming for the same way for so long. And, you know, from acting from their own self-interest, they just don't want to be bothered. You know, they want to live their peaceful life and do things how they've been done forever. Um, and so it turns into these struggles between the landowners and you get some who are saying, you know, Oh, the peasants are just lazy. Like they just need authority. You know, we should, we should never have gone away from serfdom. They should be our slaves. And you have others um, like the man um, Sviatsky, who's like, oh, we just need to educate the peasants. And if they were more educated, they would see things as we do. And you see that Levin is kind of between these two thoughts. And he's realizing the peasants, um, you know, aren't acting in our interests, but that educating them and just bringing them to our, you know, point of view isn't the right way to go about this, but that instead, like he comes up with this idea to make farming more about the worker and that if the worker was being edified and, and was buying into the process, the worker was able to take ownership of his own work that um, production would increase on its own because the worker would, would, um, would be, um, you know, we're like working harder and more joyfully and um, with vigor instead of trying to resist at every stop. Um, and I think, you know, you see some quotes as as Levin's laying um, in his. Levin does a lot of like not sleeping <laughs> throughout this part. You know, he doesn't sleep. He he doesn't sleep in the haystack. You know, and he starts you know wishing that he was a peasant. And he doesn't sleep at this um, this farming person's house because um, he's thinking about farming. Um, but he but he says in his mind, um, you know, I should have said to him, 
him being one of the landowners, that you do your farming like that old man, that you've found a way of getting the workers interested in the success of the work and have found some midpoint in improvements that they can recognize and without exhausting the soil, you'll bring in two or three times more than before. So it's kind of like Levin's trying to get, he's trying to give ownership to the peasants of their work and um, trying to get them to participate as shareholders and you know, so he's come out, he starts practicing this on his own land and, you know, it's kind of, kind of works, kind of, kind of doesn't at some points, you know, it's, it's slow going, but, um, you just see him living out, you know, his own, you know, he has these convictions, um, and you see him living those things out. And I love that about, about Levin. I think it's in contrast to a lot of the people, uh, you know, one of the landowners is a guy, a person who thinks one thing, but acts another. And, uh, you know, you see Levin very much is the antithesis of that. Um, but getting into, I mean, do y'all have any thoughts about the farming stuff? I thought, I thought it was super interesting, but my dad's a farmer. <laughs> I personally loved that, or at least I didn't see a lot of, I kind of read it pretty fast, but after talking about it with you, Austin, the other day, it really mm-hmm. opened up a lot of, I think, important ideas. One of the ideas was, yeah, like how do you get people that work for you Mm -hmm. to care about the project you're working on? And I don't know, I forgot where I read this quote, but this quote came to mind was that treat your employees as if they are your Mm -hmm. customers. And I just think back of all the jobs I've worked and the bosses where I had a lot of respect for them was that they treated me the same way that they treated the customers. Whereas the jobs I hated was when the managers were just trying to, <laughs> they would be brutal to you behind closed doors. And then they would put this, they become a different personality when they're interacting with the customers. But I think it's, I also think it's the idea of people that try to, at least in a man management area, or even just people skills in general, that, some managers will try to change their employees' behavior, which I feel like that's where Levin was at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Whereas other managers focus more on the relationship and more of about people's character. Because you can buy hands, but you can't buy hearts, you know, and being able to connect and build a friendship. And that's what Levin is like progressively doing throughout this part. He's becoming like one of the peasants. He's working alongside of them. And I think he's ironically um, more, getting more down, more progress down the path he wants to by building friendships with them, even though he's frustrated. Yeah, no, and, and like progress is, is happening. Um, you know, he there is um, improvements made to the land by um, by Levin's first implementation of this plan. Of, you know, of, of having the workers split the profits, and you know, having them you know, make decisions on how they want the land to be farmed instead of Levin just top down telling them exactly what to do. Um, so I think it, it, it's a cool little road Levin's on of, uh, of empowering people, honestly, um, even though he's not doing it, he's not even doing this from this high and mighty place of, you know, um, this is some ethical ideal of his that, you know, the peasants are supposed to be treated in this way. Like he really, he really just sees them as people. Um, not as a class of people. Um, 
and he really just like wants to do farming well and like thinks this works so it's kind of it's kind of interesting it's like he's doing all the right things um and he's not doing them for the reasons that people constantly try to ascribe you know um ascribe to these good things um you know, he, he would tell you, I'm not a virtuous person. I'm just doing acting in my own interest. But really, and you see it, and you see in his actions, you see that he's a very loving and caring man. Um, yeah, I, then getting into, you know, his interactions with his brother, you know, his brother comes uh, like Levin has been working on the farming. He's so um, absorbed with that and writing a book about it. Um and all of a sudden his kind of uh i never really understood what was going on with this guy his his brother has kind of got some mental illness going on but he also has tuberculosis i think that he's wasting away um and he's got this terrible cough and he's dying and he was at the he was at the springs but now he shows up at levin's house and levin's like oh no exactly who i don't want to see <laughs> but then he feels ashamed of that as soon as he like embraces his brother and um i think it's it's, it's cool in this section because like everything that levin is feeling towards his brother is just like so clearly picked up by his brother who's known him for so long um and they have this weird tension where they can't say what they're really thinking but they're both reading it on each other's face um so i'm going to read a little section Levin had long ago observed that when things are made awkward by people's excessive compliance and submission, they're soon, oh wait, nope, that's too early. Okay, here it is. <laughs> Levin felt himself guilty and could do nothing about it. He felt that if they had both not pretended, but had spoken from the heart, not only what they both actually thought and felt, they could they would have looked into each other's eyes and Constantin would have said only, you're going to die, to die, to die. And Nikolai would have answered only, I know I'm going to die, but I'm afraid, afraid, afraid. And they would have said nothing else if they had spoken from the heart. But it was impossible to live that way. And therefore, Constantin tried to do what he had tried to do all his life without succeeding. And what, in his ob observation, many could do so well. And without, with, with, without which it was impossible to live, he tried to say what he did not think and kept feeling that it came out false and that his brother noticed it and was annoyed by it. So you see this like interesting tension of, you know, the brother is staying at the house and he's coughing well into the night and Levin can't help but stay awake and th and just think my brother's dying and we can't even talk about it. You know, all they can talk about it is com all they can talk about is, you know, Levin's farming and oh is it communism or is it, you know, something new and Nikolai starts, you know, you know, making, you know, just getting annoyed by this tension. Um, that's so obvious between them and Nikolai can't talk about it either. You know, he says like, I'm, you know, you know, talks about all his plans that he has for his life. Um, but in both of their faces, they both know, um, that death is imminent. And, um, I just think it's so interesting and, and it shows, it teaches us about Levin's character, you know, of just like how honest he is that, you know, he's being torn up by the fact that he can't even, speak about what he's you know thinking with his brother and and share that um share those moments with him um and i think it, it, it also is a nice contrast to uh his his older brother's visit um 
in which, um, gosh, I don't know. I guess it's just like this, it's like this theme of, of speaking words and like, when is it appropriate to speak about what's happening? And when is it not appropriate? You know, with his older brother, all he wants to talk about is the beauty of the land and Levin recognizes that, but thinks it doesn't need to be said. And, and here you have, um, something, you know, some very important matter, you know, one of his, his younger brothers dying and they both know it, but they can't speak about it. And so it ruins this whole visit where they just can't say what they're really thinking and, and can't open up to each other. Um, so I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on, on that interaction? Uh, I think I mean, you're, he would have I think you're muted, Emma. Hey, yeah. Hey, I was just wondering, do you think it would have helped to visit at all if, if they were completely honest with each other? I think so. Um, you know, it says like they would have not been able to say anything else if they had just gone out and said what, what they were both thinking. But, um, but I don't know. You see kind of in the departure that there is a little breakthrough that um, – you know, Nikolai, as he's hugging him goodbye, he suddenly, you know, says, don't think badly of me, you know, with his voice trembling. And, you know, it's kind of this um, this one little moment where they're both kind of verbally recognize, like, I'm going away forever. Um, and that, you know, this is the only sincere words that were spoken at this visit. Um, and Levin understands, you know, and... Um, you know, he cries and, you know, they kiss and um, there's a little bit of reconciliation as he leaves. Um, but uh, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on this section, Cam? I know we're kind of getting low on time. Yeah. The one thing I appreciated was the line you just read when Nikolai says, anyhow, mm-hmm. don't think badly of me. He's, it's it's like it changes the vibe of the conversation from them talking about communism and the farm and everything to yeah to him just being vulnerable. He's like, okay, that's right. I'm gonna die. This might be the last time I ever see you. Yeah. Um, please don't think badly of me. And <laughs> you know, and it's just this act of vulnerability that results yeah. in a connection between him and his brother. Um, yeah. Which I, I definitely appreciate. Well, anyway, I, I think you know. This kind of wraps up um, our discussion on part three. You know, um, it's really been this huge growth for Levin's character. You know, looking inward to himself of like, what am I really, what I really want, and who am I, and um, you know, kind of acting from his heart. And and now you see he's kind of contemplating, you know, what he was doing with his life's work with. Uh, um, you know, this realization that life is not infinite, um, on, on planet earth at least. And, you know, he's, he's now struggling with that. Um, but I think that's going to do it for us. So stay tuned till next time. Thank you everyone for listening. Woo. Like, comment and subscribe.